0: Uh, I'm Pastor Gabriel, one of the pastors here. Um, Today, uh, we're we're going over the second line of the Lord's Prayer. Last week, Joey brought us through our Father in Heaven. Uh, And this week, we go into Hallowed Be Your Name. And the name is a powerful thing. Um, This plays out in fiction quite often. Uh, We see this negatively, very famously, or infamously, in the Harry Potter series uh, with the Dark Lord also known as Voldemort, also known as He Who Must Not Be Named, Uh, the name given uh, to the most wicked villain uh, to ever uh, come up in this world. They call him He Who Must Not Be Named because they are so afraid of who he is and all that he stands for uh, that the very utterance of his name terrifies them because they consider it dangerous to even speak his name. Positively, uh, we see this in the Narnia series, and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where uh, the name of Aslan, the great lion, uh, who is meant to be some sort of Christ figure, uh, just hearing his name produces these, uh, these unbelievable, wonderful feelings in the four children uh, as they uh, first enter into Narnia and hear from the beaver, I uh, forgot his name, Mr. Beaver, uh, about Aslan, the great lion. Um, on the other side, the, wick, the wicked witch or the white witch uh, is so terrified of Aslan that she forbids his name from being spoken. Uh, in fact, she, she says anyone who says his name will be threatened with death. And it's because she understands his power. She understands his might. She can't take it. She's scared of him. See, the name is a powerful thing. But not just in fiction, but also in reality. Uh, because we see as uh, today we look at the second line uh, in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, the Lord points us to the name of God last week we uh, started on this series, we recognized our father in heaven, and this week uh, we look at this line, hallowed be your name, and we want to explore two ideas. First off, our father is a holy God, and second, his holiness makes us holy. So first off, our God is a holy God, and second off, his holiness makes us holy. First off, our father is holy. Uh, after uh, the, the beginning uh, to teach us, Jesus leads us, uh, and his disciples to recognize, first off, who it is that we're talking to, right? It starts with God's name and then everything else follows. Our Father who art in heaven, all right? This is the, the WPL in me. The, the, the King James Version is, is uh, beaten into my heart. So if, you know, some thys and thous come out, you'll know what I mean, all right? Hallowed be your name, right? It's no accident that this is the order that Jesus puts it in because it is from God's name who we learn who God is. And it is the basis of which uh, we learn to communicate with our God. It's understanding who he is by understanding his name. And it's important that we understand who we are talking about because then and only then will we properly know how to talk to him. And so this idea, hallowed be your name, we need some help to break it down. Uh, These are not words we often use. Um, To hallow something uh, is to make something holy. It could be to make something holy right? Uh, we can easily throw this uh, out the door as, as uh, there's, this would not make sense in this case. To hallow, uh, make, to make God holy would not make any sense because that would, to, that would presume that he was not holy in the first place, that he was unholy before we hallowed his name, uh, and that does not make any sense. This is a holy God who was and is and always is holy. Hallowed could also mean to make something or honor something as holy, to consider it as holy. And I think that actually fits what Jesus is teaching us, to honor God as holy. Now, now, what is holiness? It's something we sing about all the time. We repeat it a lot. And yet, when we are confronted with the question, what does holy mean, most of us draw blank. We think things like, "ah, uh, purity. Um, and that's, that's right, that that's true. Uh, and that's often the first definition we hear. But the Bible uses holiness in other ways as well. Holiness describes something that's set apart, something that is transcendent, above normal things. Uh, and in other ways, it's so far above that nothing is like it. And I think that's part of the reason why we struggle to define holiness. There's nothing that is comparable to holiness. Holiness is in a category all of its own. And so these definitions all together, I think, get us help us get a sense of what Jesus is calling for. When he says to hallow the name of God, it is to set God's name high above ourselves, to set it apart from all other things. This is fitting with how God views himself. We see this in scripture, in Luke chapter one, verse 49, where it says, holy is his name, referring to himself. It's not just call me holy. He says, holy is his name, the name holy (laughs) He gives to himself, he ascribes it to himself. And it's not just a characteristic of God, it's how he views himself holy. And it's our temptation oftentimes to think, you know, if someone asks, What are the characteristics of God? We think of things like, you know, he's mighty, he's powerful, he's just, he's merciful, and then we like to add in holy as one of those characteristics. Yet yeah, for God, holiness encompasses all those things. That's why he has a holy mercy. He has a holy love, a holy kindness. The holiness describes how all of him is set apart from all other things and all other people. This is his all-encompassing description of himself. In Isaiah chapter six, verse three, as the seraphim are around the throne of God and they look upon him, they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Nothing else, not merciful, not kind, not just, but holy. Holy, holy. And they repeat it three times. That's how much they want to emphasize God's holiness. It's the only description they see fitting to use for God. They focus on his holiness. He's so far apart, so unlike all else. He is the holy God. And this is what Jesus is saying when he says, hallowed be his name. We have to understand this about God and honor his name as holy. Set him above all else. This is the only right way to approach the Father as a holy God, worthy of honor. We need to exalt his name above all other names. We need to count him above all else. We need to see him as personally greater than everything else. And it doesn't mean that he isn't above all else until we pray these words, but it does mean that he's teaching us to change our hearts and how we view God, to properly honor him as holy and supreme. Give him the honor and the glory that he is due. And it's important that we understand this idea of a name, right? We hallow his name, but, but are we just talking about the, the literal name of God, right? Does, is Jesus just telling us, well, make sure you tattoo your, you know, G- Yahweh across your chest or wear clothes that have Jesus printed on it or uh, make sure there's a Jesus poster next to your live, laugh, love poster where you, you see it and you're like, wow, Jesus, it's above the other poster. Like, well, what, what is he actually talking about? Name, the name, it refers to all of God, the wholeness of God. Right, in the ancient world, a person's name gave us a sense of their core identity. It was their very essence. The name carried all of that. Uh, it's very different from our modern day kind of nonchalant view of names where you can change it on a whim. Right? If you feel like it, you can become Chad Cinco or Meta World Peace, right? for those sports nerds in here. You can change your name to whatever you desire, and yet for the people of the ancient world, for for Jesus here, he's saying your name encompasses all of who you are, and that's what he's trying to point us to. Your name isn't something you can put on or take off like clothes, but it represented all of who God was. In the Old Testament, we see this quite often where uh, Israel would come into contact with other nations, and we would hear about their responses. They hear about the name of God. It, it, It comes along with everything he has done for Israel. They're terrified of Yahweh, the God of Israel, because they know what he's done for Israel, right? The same as Rahab, the, the, the prostitute, as, as these spies are coming in uh, and speaking to her, she, she shields them and she says, the reason I do this is because I've heard of what your God, Yahweh, has done. I've heard of what, what your Lord has done on behalf of you guys. It, it evokes fear and trembling. It's not simply a name, it encompasses all of who a God is. It's your essence. And so what Jesus is turning our attention to is look upon God's whole being. Look upon all of who he is as a holy God. Look upon every characteristic and attribute of him, because when we do, it actually corrects our hearts. We begin to see him correctly, bring all his characteristics to mind. But why? Why does Jesus lead us in this? First step. What does hallowing his name do? It corrects us. It corrects our hearts. Last week, we looked at how God is our father. We are his children, and it gave us access to this incredible intimacy with with our God. And that's amazing. That's something we need to utilize, something we need to take advantage of as we come close to our father and get to hear his voice. We get to get his ear and his heart But lest we forget his identity as a holy God and treat him with irreverence or disrespect, God calls us to honor him properly, right? And that's our tendency as humans, right? When we get this amazing gift, we usually take it for granted almost instantly. And we saw that with Israel throughout the Old Testament. As soon as they got him, they took him for granted. They treated him with irreverence. They forgot who he was, that this was the almighty God who led them out of Egypt, who saved them from nation after nation and brought them out of slavery and bondage and made them a nation, a holy nation. See, for us, we cannot forget this creator God who has power over all things. And by telling us to hallow his name, to honor his name, God is trying to teach us to correctly see him because it changes how we pray. It changes how we approach him. It gives us a sense of weightiness that we otherwise often do not have. In uh, Isaiah 6, which we read before we entered into worship, there's this amazing moment where Isaiah the prophet sees a vision of God sitting upon his throne and he is utterly destroyed by his vision because he recognizes upon gazing on this holy God just how insignificant and small and unholy he is. That's why the first words out of his mouth is, Woe is me. He's destroyed. He's distraught. It's seeing something so glorious that he recognizes his own smallness. And that's that's what this weightiness of holiness is when we come before a holy God, sit before his throne, and we recognize, finally, I'm not God. I am not God. He is God. I'm small. I am powerless, I am limited, I am finite, but he is infinite, he is holy, he is forever and eternal, he is mighty. That's the correction of heart that Jesus is trying to, to produce within us. Seeing him correctly transforms our prayers in drastic ways because it transforms our hearts. We're gonna look at three ways that it transforms pra- uh, 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 our hearts. First off is humility, Second is devotion. And third is confidence. So there's three little ways that, that God changes our hearts. First off, humility. Right, pride is something that creeps into our prayers often without us even realizing. Think about it this way. Think about a vending machine. I know that's a weird way to, to, to look at it, but, but imagine yourself. Long day of work has passed by. You're tired. You've worked hard for your nickels, your pennies, your quarters, You carry with them into the break room. You see that vending machine, and there is, for myself, kettles, chips, jalapeno flavor. And you think to yourself, my gosh, the Lord knew what I needed. You put your quarters in, actually, no, inflation, sorry. You put in your dollar bill and your quarter, and you press D9. that spinny thing begins to spin. And you say, oh, bless the Lord, oh, my soul. And that kettle chip comes forward smack dab into the glass and it hangs there taunting you. And you go, oh my gosh. So what do you do? Right, you get angry. You begin pounding on that glass. You begin to press D9 harder as if that would do something. And you're frustrated. Right? And all these things go through your head. You're like, what are you doing? I paid for this. I earned this. Where are my kettle chips? That ridiculous illustration is oftentimes how we treat our God, isn't it? God, I've worked so hard. I've earned it. I've prayed for it. I, I did everything correctly. You're not doing your work correctly. Where's what I asked for? You're broken. you have messed up. Right? These are the, the, the things that bubble up to the surface inside our hearts. These are hints that make it clear for us to see that there is pride within us when we come before a holy God. Imagine like Isaiah sitting before a holy throne and going, give me what I want. That makes no sense. We become demanding. We become upset with God. We make accusations that he's failing at his job that comes from a heart that expects God to bend to your will. I've done my part, God, now do yours. It's easy to get to this point if we don't see God correctly. If we don't hallow his name, if we don't honor him as holy, as the almighty God. But if we do, Give him the proper honor. We will be humbled. That's the natural progression of things. It's a wonderful place to be. Yes, he allows us to come before him and speak with him honestly. The Psalms tell us that very clearly, but he never allows our pride. It doesn't allow us to come before him pride-driven. And like Isaiah, we properly recognize that we have no right in the first place to be in the presence of God. And we can only say, woe is me. I don't deserve to be in your presence like Peter, leave me. God, I am, I'm a sinful man. I have no right to be in your presence, but it's only by the work of Christ that we are allowed in and we come in with humility, recognizing the gift that we've been given second, come people of devotion. Our prayers are filled with devotion. The problem with us is that we are often fickle people with fickle hearts. Right. Israel's history served to prove that to us in many different ways where we saw them constantly abandoning the God who saved them. And we see that throughout history, again and again, they turn from him. And we are not very different. We tend to turn to whoever and whatever promises solutions quickly, fix my issues as fast as possible. Right. If we get a sense of that, that one solution is better than the other, we have no problem dropping the original for the better solution. Right, it's like King Saul, who, after being rejected by God and not hearing from him, decided, I'm gonna to go to the medium to call upon the dead prophet Samuel. Right, it's, God, your, your solution's not good enough. You're not answering me. I'm gonna go elsewhere. I'm gonna find others. I mean, imagine that, the, the king of Israel going to a necromancer to talk to the dead. God, you're not doing it fast enough. Unfortunately, this is how we often interact with our God. You're not doing it right. I'm going to find my own solution. I'm going to turn from you whenever I need to find a better one. You see, if we honor God correctly, we will see that he is always worthy of worship and praise. Always. If we properly honor him, we we recognize that he has never turned on us. He's never forsaken us. It causes us to grow in devotion to him, to be loyal to him, because when we look back and recognize not just in Old Testament history, but also our own lives, we've seen how throughout every step of the way, he's been there with us in our good moments and in our worst moments. We've seen how he's carried us out of those moments into redemption. He's proven himself over and over again that he can and should and must be trusted. And ultimately, we're led back to the cross the very darkest moment in history where we see his faithfulness shining brightly for us. He did not forsake us in that moment. He did not leave us, but he was always there for us and he used those moments for our good. It causes us to become devoted to him. Third, it means we grow in confidence in him. Right? Oftentimes we lack uh, a confidence in in how we pray to God. It, it's very ironic, right? We 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 proclaim Him to be a holy God, a mighty God, able to do all things, and yet when it comes to prayers that we you know just logically think about, I was like, wow, well, I I don't know what are the chances God would actually answer this. We we almost pray as if it's insurance, right? We 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 cover our basis and maybe this this prayer will do the trick. I'll throw this out there, so maybe God will see it and be like, oh, He did it you win the lottery. Congratulations. Like, wow, well done. I think this is why a lot of our youth kids become very holy in the term, in, in, when uh, AP testing comes along. It's like, oh, it's like, wow, what's going on? Ah, I see. Right, certainly something entirely different to speak to God in confidence. And I'm not saying, and the Bible doesn't tell us, that if we pray in confidence, God will give you exactly what you desire but what the Bible does promise is that when we delight in God, when we finally delight in him, honor him properly, that is, he gives us the desires of our hearts. Not what you wish for, but what your hearts actually need. That's fulfillment in Christ, to be fully fed in his goodness and joy. In other words, when we delight in him, when we honor him properly, we find ourselves growing in confidence because we know that he is a God who always fulfills his promises. That every promise that he has given to his people, he carries it out through to the end. That never once in recorded history do we have a God who says one thing and does another. But we have a God who is always the same and that gives us strength Not in circumstantial change that God will give me these things, but rather in the certain redemption and salvation that God promises for His people that will absolutely happen and we can hold fast to that to the very end. Do you pray with that confidence, my friends? That God, even if you do not heal my mother from this sickness, even if I were to die in this affliction, that your promises, to carry me through to the end, to wipe me clean and give me the innocence that I so long for will absolutely happen. Does that not fill you with confidence? Do you pray with that confidence, my friends? Because it does not matter what will happen in this life. Our God will complete his work in and through us. Jesus is our guarantee. Secondly, his holiness makes us holy. So we have a holy God And now his holiness makes us holy. See, if we honor God as holy, if we hallow his name, we honor him, something naturally happens to us. This transformation begins to take place inside our hearts. Uh, Augustine said it this way when he was talking about the Lord's Prayer. The making of this petition is made so that the name may be held holy by men. That is, so that God may become known to them in such a way that they will deem nothing more holy nothing which they would be more fearful to offend. When we make this petition, God is changing our hearts so that there would be nothing worse than offending God, that we would properly honor him so much so that he becomes the one thing we long to to satisfy, the one person we long to satisfy. We we don't want to offend him. That's the the most scary thing, and that's not to say that our faith is fear-driven by punishment, but rather a transformed heart that desires first and foremost to honor God above all things. Because to not honor him would be the worst thing. It would, to show, it would be to show that we don't actually love him pro- properly. And therefore, we don't want it to happen. Right? God's will has become supreme, and all other wills, including our own, becomes lesser. So John, the apostle, says, oh, you know, may your name be raised up, my, my name be lessened. So this is that very idea of the correcting of, of perspective and, and will and that's why the lord's prayer is ordered the way it is right if you uh, as Caleb was reading for us the first half is all about god's will your name your kingdom your will and that's on purpose Jesus is, is correcting our perspective to put his father's will before our own, his, his father's goals before our own, and then the second half is where our concerns, our needs come, give us this, forgive us this, deliver us this, and that's all totally con- uh, intentional. It's not accidental. Jesus is teaching us to place God's desires before our own. And this is how hallowing his name transforms our prayers. It puts him before ourselves. All right, it kind of reminds me of uh, a wedding vows in some ways. Uh, it's been wedding season for me and my family. We've been going to multiple weddings. Um, and you know, it's a very sweet moment where, when they're up in the front, the, the, the fiancees uh, who are about to become husband and wife give a vow to each other, all right? And each person is given uh, some time to generally gush about the other person, right? Oh, when I saw you at Quickly's, my mind was blown, whatever. Uh, I'm, you know, and then you know, it grows a little deeper, it's like, wow, Uh, I, I can't believe, you know, I discovered your character and it, it, you know, you're so kind and generous, etc., whatever. Uh, And then, and then it's followed up by, I'm so excited for the life we'll live together as we raise baby children, whatever. Okay, great. Wonderful, very sweet, very, very uh, 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 corny. Um, But... Then this, is, or then this is followed up uh, by promises. Like, I will make sure to, to, to wash the laundry. I will walk your dog. I will cook your food, etc." And And it's just, you know, it's a very sweet moment. Would it not be very awkward if the two got up there and it was time for vows and they went up there, you know, took out their, their piece of paper and says, let me tell you, my dear, sweet fiance, how much I love myself. Here are all the ways you are a lucky woman. Also, here are promises that I will make to take care of myself in the coming years. Makes no sense. It would be ridiculous. In a very similar way, honoring God, to see God properly helps us correct our perspective, to place God before ourselves to say, I remember who you are. I remember what you've done. I know what you've done for me. And I remember why I love you. And just point us to the cross again and again. Point us to the cross. What has he done? What has he done? Why does he do it? How does he love us? And therefore, you come before me. I don't love myself first anymore. I don't want what I want first anymore. I want what you want. I want to live for you. I want to devote my time to you. I want to devote my heart to you. It challenges our very selfish nature that is inherent in each one of us. R.C. Sproul, the theologian, said it this way. How we understand the person and character of God the Father affects every aspect of our life. It affects far more than what we normally call the religious aspects of our lives. If God the creator is the creator of the entire universe, then it must follow that he is the Lord of the whole universe. No part of the world is outside of his lordship. That means no part of my life must be outside of his lordship. His holy character has something to say about economics, politics, athletics, romance, everything with which we are involved. In other words, if he truly is a holy God above all things, then he and who he is, it affects every aspect of who we are. It transforms every part of who we are, not just the religious parts, not just Sundays. It affects every aspect because there's been a reordering. God is overall and no longer are we overall. It starts with the hallowing, the honoring of God's name as holy. See, if God is a holy God, then we must be a holy people. He says that from the very beginning, from the early days of of infancy of of Israel I'm a holy God, you must be my holy people. But what does that entail? I know it's easy for us to say, okay, fine, we need to be holy. What does that practically mean, though? Does that mean we just need to follow more complicated rules? Do we need need to act a certain way, perform a certain way, and make sure we don't mess up? I think two questions will help us figure this out. First off, do you fear offending God? Do you fear offending God? And fear, in fact, is the correct attitude. That's why God's people again and again are commanded to fear God. It's not just a terror of what he could do to you, though that is certainly a part of it, but it is also pointing us towards the proper respect and awe of saying, God, you're God, I'm not. You are the holy God. It's desiring to never offend him because you don't want to, because you love him, right? And love and fear go hand in hand because you don't want to hurt the one you love. That if you love someone, that it becomes your greatest fear, doesn't it? I don't want to hurt them. I don't want to hurt them. If you love him supremely, above all other things, to be holy is to love God so supremely that offending him becomes the worst possible outcome. My friends, is that your heart? Do you fear offending God? And second question to ask, is God the Lord of your life? If he truly is a holy God, he's above all things, then he must naturally be above you that's hard to accept. That means you're not number one anymore. That means you don't get to say what you want to do with your life anymore. Because if he is Lord over all things, then he is over you in every aspect of you. And that's what you know, Scripture points us to, whether we eat or drink, we do it for the glory of God. That is to say, how do we honor him in every aspect of what we do? With every breath that we breathe. That is to come before God and to ask him, what would you want me to do in this situation? How can I honor you in this situation? If we say God is holy and we genuinely mean it, there is no way to live unaffected by this truth. That is to prove that you don't actually understand what it means to say God is holy. Doesn't mean there's no grace. There certainly is for each of us as we fail as broken human beings being Made more and more into the image of God each day, but it means we progress towards understanding what it means to have God as Lord over all of our lives. My friends, who's Lord over your life? Who gets final say in what you do? Who gets final say in how you live your life? That is a tough but necessary question we need to ask.